Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this week's episode with Drew Bonsall, co-founder and chief security officer of Unchained Capital and a repeat guest here at TFTC. We talked about uh, a little bit over a year ago, I think. I think it was over a year ago, yes, because we recorded from the dig office. Um, so Drew and I caught up what's been going on uh, at Unchained in his life uh, and a bunch of other things. Talk a lot about multi-sig hardware wallets. Uh, got a little cosmic talking about Bitcoin mining center of hash and then sending Bitcoin transactions from space and what that may look like in the future. Ended it with a little bit of Kanye talk. Typical. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money. And now, it's the simplest way to try to grow your money, introducing Cash App investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stock, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. Guess what? You can stack sats on the app. You have been able to for a while now. Now you can stack fractions of stocks if you want to. All right. If you want to diversify into stocks, you can buy a fraction. You don't have to buy a whole stock anymore. Uh, if your favorite company is hot, expensive, and you want to you stack a little bit of that stock, you can bite off a little fraction of it using the Cash App now. Um, and because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods for your inbound transfers. You can start investing today. Get on it. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary Square and member SIPC. And as always... When you sign up, use the code stacking sats. Guess what, freaks? They just upped it. They doubled it. It's not five dollars anymore upon download. If you use the promo code stacking sats when you download, you're gonna get ten dollars and Cash App will send ten dollars to Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. <coughs> like a bird. Not Al. Uh, not like Al's beef. The bird, not the not the fat man. Um, so yeah, go download the Cash App today. Use the code stacking sats, get that ten dollars and ten dollars over to owls and uh yeah check it out hope you guys enjoy this episode with Drew. Uh, again it's always a great time getting together with him we had some pre-noon beers uh on a saturday morning and uh um, disclaimer unchained is a uh unchained capital is a sponsor of rabbit hole recap and marty's bent um but whatever i love talking to Drew. we had a great conversation enjoy From the what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales of the Crypt. It's Marty Bent sitting down with Drew Bunsall. Hey, everybody. Chief Security Officer, co-founder of Unchained Capital. Uh, back again. Ah! You freaks just heard that that little disturbance there. I figured out what it is. It's my phone near the Zoom. I can't have my phone near the Zoom. Oh, interesting. It creates a little audio disturbance. Uh, Drew, recently married, in town visiting the folks. I am. Congrats, man. Welcome Thank to you. married life. Thank you. It's great. How was that experience? What'd you guys do? Um, for the wedding? Yeah. Oh my God. It was like a uh, ridiculous Bollywood Indian wedding that I guess I'm on the air now. I'll say it wasn't necessarily what I wanted, but it made everybody in my happy really, really, or everybody in my family really, really happy. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened. It was awesome. Where, uh, Where'd you guys do it? Right outside of Texas at a little resort. It's really hard to move hundreds of Indian people around from location <laughs> to location. Like, so that was the one ask I made that I did get in this whole process is we got everybody out to one resort. They just had to get to that one place and then they could like take golf carts around and not really have to coordinate after that point. Yeah. And Indian weddings are big events, right? Like three days. Yeah. We love weddings. It's like a huge deal. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. 
how uh, three days of celebration, correct? It was like at least three days Boss. of celebrating. Boss. Well, when was the last time we talked? It was like, I was, we recorded that in the dig office. That'd be last summer, right? So over a year ago at this mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about space a little bit then. Only a bit, yeah. Only a bit. You have uh, since expanded on that topic. <laughs> Definitely want to jump into that. But uh, just generally, like how things been going at Unchained? Like how's your year been? Oh, it's been an incredible year. I mean, compared to the prior year where like prices were just tanking and uh, where, you know, our, our lending model is getting stressed out. The market is like freaking out. People are capitulating towards the end of the year. This has been a way, way better year. I mean, Bitcoin one is up like it's more stable. There's so many more interesting companies and I think so much more awareness of the value of stuff that Unchained does. So multi-sig financial services. That's been a great year. Yeah. No, it's crazy to see how... Um like the explosion of again, like fundamental companies, everything's been going on a lightning, the mm-hmm. developments mm-hmm. of multi-sig, the open source contribution you guys are making, like slip 39, you guys mm-hmm. just announced recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do we want to start? Let's, uh, let's start with something, I guess let's start with, uh, the multi-sig stuff. Like how are you building that product? There was, um, there was, a. Uh, uh, the Casa team gave a presentation mm-hmm. in Riga about uh, mm-hmm. the web browser setup. So, um, what's going on with the multi-sig product? How are you guys approaching it specifically with the web browser thing? Uh, if you if you use a incognito or private window, you're probably good. But there are things that you have to worry about, right? Uh, especially with signature verification. Oh yeah. Oh totally. Um, maybe we can separate and talk about. Uh, the things you need to worry about when you use hardware wallets, period, and then how multi-sig makes that harder or easier and safer or less safe. So I think, you know, I got to give it credit to the to the Casa team and to Jeremy in particular. Like, it's important to surface issues with security. Not everybody realizes that browser extensions are just, just this horrific playground of, of potential exploits. Um, and it's funny, like, sometimes the, the most programmery amongst us are, like, the least willing to use uh, other people's software, right? So I think it's easy to, for me as a programmer to take it for granted that people understand what browser security, but they don't. And so it's important to be reminded of that. And I think Jeremy made a really good point that uh, browser extensions can wreak havoc on your expectations of security of some site that you're looking at. So that's the good part. I think the, the, the part I didn't appreciate as much is the pretend that somehow uh, you know, our Unchained Capital's website is uniquely um, susceptible to browser extension hacks or something. When I think, ironically, we're probably one of the few websites on the planet that actually gives you tools to uh, get around issues of trust with your web browser and your computing environment. What are those tools like? Um, they're hardware wallets at the end of the day. I think that's what's so compelling to us about using hardware wallets as a rails for our customers to hold their keys. I mean, the people that make hardware wallets, Satoshi Labs, the Ledger team, Cold Card, they're thinking a lot about the problems with browsers, the security problems with computers in general, and they're trying to, instead of giving you band-aids or like really hard to follow rules or white lists and constantly updating threat vectors. They're just saying, skip the whole thing, like move to this dedicated device. That's going to protect you in all these stronger ways. So, yeah, no, that's why I'm happy to see the, the trend of probably being set by companies mm-hmm. like cold card where you can, where you can check your whole X pub key on the device. Oh yeah. And, uh, just do it on the device. And do you think we are moving towards that being the standard? And so that's really the rub here, right? So multi-sig makes using hardware wallets in general, makes storing Bitcoin in general more safe. You have more keys that uh, you know you have to manage and the logistics can get a bit more complex, but you're fundamentally better protected. You have redundancy, you have the ability to separate keys out geographically. That's, those are the positives. 
The negatives are it's inherently a more complicated kind of protocol. Um, a kind of unique idea to multi-sig is this concept that the key, one key alone is insufficient for you to determine all the addresses and the balances and the, uh, the general transaction activity of a multi-sig account, if you'd like. And that's really where the rub, especially with browsers, kind of comes back. Uh, the Trezor team, just to highlight them, because they're actually one of the, the, the better examples of a hardware wallet out there these days, they do a great job in a single SIG environment, making it so that you, the Trezor uh, device owner, have a lot of direct ways to confirm things like addresses and public keys and you know derivation paths and all that right on the Trezor device. You'll see that information on the screen. You can confirm it. You can have a strong guarantee, for example, that when the Trezor website, which is a website and is ultimately subject to the same kinds of browser extensions, hacks, um, you can have really strong confidence that whatever you're seeing in your browser is the real deal because you're seeing it on your Trezor as well. That's a very powerful primitive for users to utilize in verifying the security of some site they're dealing with, as well as their own computing environment. The challenge when that, is, that same idea is applied to multi-sig is it's just simply not as easy to make the same kind of confirmations. You can't merely plug in one of your keys and then check that the multi-sig address that you're being displayed in, in, on your computer and in a web browser or wherever is actually correct. You need some information about the other keys in that quorum. And now, Unchained Capital, for example, gives you that information. You're able to download it directly from you know, the page of your vault or loan, so it's definitely available to you. But getting your hardware wallet to understand that extra information isn't as easy as it should be. And Trezor, just again, to, to highlight them as, as a, frankly, a good example of this, actually falls short on this last point, that they don't have, for example, in, in many of their ways that you talk to the device, they don't have the multi-sig equivalent for show me this address. Now, they for sure have it on the device. The Trezor is capable of answering that question very directly, but you have to talk to it outside of the browser. That's our current understanding of what this looks like. Are there deep reasons for that? I'm not sure. We could ask the Satoshi Labs team. In my view, it would be really awesome if they surface some of that multi-sig functionality up a little bit so it could be called from browser extent or from the browser directly, which would really help in security for applications that run in that context. Um, and I'm sure they'll get there. It is ultimately, as you, as you mentioned, a matter of standardization. That with single sig, there's like a very clear path to like, oh, I have a private key. Here's how I turn it into, you know, a, a long sequence of addresses for my balances. In multi-sig, they're just, it's more complicated. There aren't as clear standards, though there are some emerging. So maybe that's part of the reason. And, and just because I've been singling out Trezor, let me just pa pause and say, uh, Ledger doesn't do any of this. Ledger is a much poorer platform for multi-sig just in general because they're much further behind. Something like Cold Card, which is much newer, is actually further ahead of Trezor in this regard. Do you think this is because uh, some teams prioritize a focus on Bitcoin uh, other than others? Or yeah, uh, Yes, absolutely. That's one of the major reasons for it. Uh, there is no built-in Ethereum multi-sig. There's no built-in multi-sig in a lot of coins. And if your wallet is focused on supporting all these, all these coins, it just makes sense from a product roadmap perspective that they're going to focus on concerns, which are cross-coin, as compared to more advanced functionality, especially around multi-sig for particular coins. So I think that's definitely an advantage that, let's say, the cold card team has, is that they're Bitcoin only. They get to really push the envelope and support cutting-edge Bitcoin features, not just multi-sig, but things like partially signed Bitcoin transactions, uh, QR codes and cameras, so totally air-gapped experiences. These are really valuable innovations in the hardware wallet industry. 
Um, and I've enjoyed just them showing up as a major third player, if you'd like, at least for Bitcoin owners, because they're putting pressure on Satoshi Labs and other hardware wallet manufacturers to catch up to them in terms of feature set. That's a net good for everybody. No, I agree. And then you see people like Justin Moon taking it and running with it and creating things like Junction, which would totally be huge awesome for this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so we just had a huge conversation a couple of weeks ago about all this stuff. And it is crazy how intricate it is, like just the concept of derivation paths mm-hmm. and keeping, uh, especially in a multi-sig setup, keeping the derivation path, uh, mm-hmm. remembering it, storing mm-hmm. how it was created. And so there's so many intricate details that you have or to avoiding lock-in so for example i know a lot of people use electrum for their multi-sig what, and what do you mean by this perfectly reasonable choice to use electrum it's open source it's uh, well tested it's very old um, and therefore mature um, but at the same time uh, because it's oftentimes the first platform to implement a given functionality it, it has often made its own kind of idiosyncratic and retrospect decisions things like wallet words having their own unique Electrum way of doing it for a little while is an example of that. Um, but multi-sig as well. The derivation paths, uh, to go back to it, that Electrum uses um, are, are a little bit, I think, off the emerging standard. And so you can quite happily use Electrum to build multi-sig with treasures and ledgers and all sorts of stuff. But uh, you may be required, essentially, to use Electrum forevermore if you want to continue to work inside that quorum. If you want to get out of Electrum somehow, you might need to sweep your funds to a more standardized multi-sig kind of setup, or you just got to be a programmer and know how to get into your keys manually and such. Is this uh, a product of BIP39 and their decision to go the way they they do their seed phrase? I, I honestly just think it's another reflection of Electrum moves very quickly. Uh, just as another example, it's one of the first major wallets to actually include Lightning support. Yeah, the first uh, OG wallet. Yeah, so much about Lightning is going to change in the coming years, but Electrum's going to support it from now, and I, I suspect that will mean, you know, unless, you know, Spez and the rest of the developers there really focus on standardization in a way that they really haven't before. They've really been focused on supporting their users and giving them a good experience, which is also really important. Um, it, it arguably, what's the point of supporting an emerging standard in a, you know, couple year old technology when it might also change a few years from now? Yeah. And like, maybe there'll be many standards. Too. Yeah, correct. Yeah. These little pockets. Let's come up with our own standard to standardize the standards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're already getting cosmic here. Multiverse of standards, <laughs> if you will. No, it's, um, that's one thing, like, again, we're like almost 11 years in now, mm-hmm. and, like, it's, it's still uh, so raw right now, so, um, and everything's slowly building up, and that's why I think, uh, it's, you see in the hardware space a lot, like, people attacking people and stuff like that, I'm like, all right, like, mm-hmm. let's give it time for everything mm-hmm. to flesh out mm-hmm. and, and to figure out the best practices, because honestly, like, we don't, we don't know uh, the best practices yet. Uh, oh yeah I mean I think it's in some cases we can know them in other cases that we're writing them and figuring them out as we kind of go along I totally agree with you the attacks are a little bit I think unnecessary I think merely pushing out good features is uh, disruptive enough right now that like people and companies who are pushing the envelope in terms of privacy functionality utility these are all um, this is the best way to shake up the competition in my view put out some good code that that does something new and interesting and valuable well, let's talk about the new code you guys just released in Slip 0039. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you did this in conjunction with Satoshi's Labs, mm-hmm. um, creators of Trezor. And it's basically a, a special Shamir secret share uh, encryption that you can use uh, 
for single sig, but more ideally for multi-sig, correct? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of history there too. I think Shamir sharding, basically it's an algorithm that prior to Bitcoin, prior to a lot of the stuff that's in our universe has existed. It's existed for decades now. And it's just a way to take something arbitrary, like uh, you know, song lyrics if you wanted, just arbitrary data and split it up in a w amongst multiple parties in a way that you get this nice, nice M of N functionality where if there's N shards, you're going to need M of those shards co-located in one place in order to be able to decrypt and access the original information. The remarkable thing about Shamir sharding as compared to other ways of splitting something up, di especially digitally, is that if you have less than M of those shards, so if you have one shard or two shards, and let's say that's less than M, it's not, it's not enough to unlock the, uh, the root secret, you actually have zero information about what the original uh, data was. It's not like you incrementally increase your knowledge of that data with each shard you're able to exfiltrate or steal or acquire. It's you need all of them. That's a very powerful feature. It's binary. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, that's Shamir sharding has been around for a long while. Um, it's one of those algorithms that I think that occupies this interesting middle ground between being it's, it's, it's so easy to under, uh, if you're, if you know a little bit about mathematics and cryptography and, and computers, it's fairly easy to understand how the algorithm works. And so you think, oh, I could just write this myself. Um, but at the same time, it's, there's lots of ways to do it poorly. And there's a long history of, of, uh, fuck ups in people's Shamir algorithms. Um, there's some famous cases even in the crypto industry recently. I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name the wallet because I think I don't remember the details, but there's been already examples of wallets that have implemented Shamir on their own and just screwed it up somehow. And what they thought were all these nice protections were actually illusory. If you had one of the shares, you may have had all the secrets. Uh. And so it just goes to show that like as old as this algorithm is, there hasn't emerged really a nice standard, like a standard library in Python or C that everybody uses. I mean, there are some, but they're, they're not, it's not like, for example, um, making an HTTPS connection to a website. No programmer will write that code. They will use the library and it will work and have the, the same bugs as everybody else. Um, so I think what Slip39 represents is a few things, but first and foremost, it's, an, it's a standard for this stuff. Um, so the Satoshi Labs team did a great job um, setting up like the, or creating some original momentum around this. I'd also like to just add, it's not just the Satoshi Labs team. There's a lot of other folks from Blockchain Commons and other places, Christopher Allen, Mark Friedenbach, and several other names that have really contributed to this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very much like a, a, it's very much a group of people working on the standardization. <laughs> So one, it's a standard, two, it's an implementation. There's a Python component that Satoshi Labs wrote, and there's a C component that a few other folks, as well as some Unchained Capital engineers um, contributed. And it's important to have both. Python is really nice for developers to work with, but imagine you're gonna put this on like a really hardcore uh, security device, like a hardware wallet. You, you want it to be in C, you want it to be resistant to things like timing attacks, and you want to, you know, there's just the kind of things you want to do in a lower level language. So it's important to have multiple implementations uh, in code that target the same sort of theoretical algorithm. And it's also important to have that stuff be reviewed by real cryptographers and uh, computer engineers and security experts. So that's kind of what, one of the big things that Satoshi Labs and Unchained and Blockchain Commons and a few other uh, teams, HTC as well, have all been kind of collaborating to push out to the standard and some implementations for it. The reason it's even more interesting though, is that Slip39 represents, I think, um, a new generation of Shamir sharding technology. Uh, in the original algorithm, I described it as, you know, M of N shards. The, the, the important thing to realize is each of those shards are fundamentally the same 
in terms of the weight of information that they contain. It doesn't matter which of the M shards you put together. And if you have one of the shards, you have exactly one mth, if you'd like, of the ability to decrypt this information. So they're fungible. Uh, yes, they're, they're fungible and they're yes. also equal, right? Yes. Um, now that seems like that's a very simple scenario that makes sense, but it turns out in a lot of situations, you don't want equality. You want the ability to weight shards with different amounts of information ultimately. Influence. Influence. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it's very rare. I mean, think about where, why are shards really useful? They're useful in a couple different contexts. One, for individuals to be able to take their key or their secret and split it up in different places. But in contexts like Bitcoin, you have multisig. I think multi-sig, like multiple keys, is fundamentally superior to sharding up one key for the simple reason that when you shard one key, you have to bring all your M shards in one location geographically and concurrently at the exact same time and place. That's an opportunity now where your key is reconstituted in one location. An attacker who knows that you're about to do that can, can wait for you and, and can attack you at that moment. With multi-sig, your M keys are fundamentally parallel and separate. You can create M parallel signatures you know, at the same time, at different times, and then you can recombine the signatures later. You're never forced to be in a position where you're out there in one location with all the relevant key data unencrypted and ready to be taken, right? So in general, multi-sig is better, especially for individuals, but consider a situation like Unchained Capital, where we are holding one key in a multi-sig quorum, and we really need to protect that one key. We can't really split it up into its own multiple keys. That technology isn't really available, and Bitcoin um, isn't doesn't have some features that we'd like, like Mast and, and Schnorr and Tapper, which I can get into in a minute. But it winds up being that we need, as an organization, to protect that one key. And coming back to the idea of shares in Shamir being fundamentally equal and fungible, that's a weird tension for an organization, because fundamentally, organizations trust individuals more or less. There are more trusted executives, less trusted middle managers, and even less trusted uh, junior employees. And if you imagine a company like ours trying to set up, let's say, a signing schedule where we have an on-call rotation of trusted employees and people associated with the company that are responsible for our daily signing activity, there, we would like the ability to create high and low or medium security groups. And that is really the cool thing that Shamir, uh, that Slip39 delivers. It takes the traditional Shamir sharding algorithm and makes it hierarchical. So I can create groups of M of Ns, and I can define how many groups need to be unlocked at the same time, and each group can have a different configuration of M and N. So this is really interesting. I can have, just as an example, this is not how we do it, but I could have you know, the, the C-levels be in their own group, and I could have the middle managers be in a group, and I could require both groups sign but I might arrange it so that only one of the you know, C-levels is required, but three of the middle managers is required, and you can kind of fungibly change it around. The point is, I'm able to encode that I trust C-levels more than I trust middle managers. And so, how does this work out logistically? Like in, in Meetspace, does every person within this quorum have a hardware device? Do they have something like a YubiKey? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that starts to be uh, you know, where you take the Slip39 as an abstract algorithm and you start to implement it in real devices. And that is really going to be a function of who you're trying to solve this problem for. So Trezor, for example, the new Trezor Model T supports Slip39 natively, which is super cool. Um, but treasures are really designed, I think, for individuals to use. And so as much as there's this hierarchy and this complexity, you can really think of it as 
It's just basically vanilla shamir sharding on the Trezor designed for individuals. This is really cool because it solves the problem of if you were using a Trezor previously, you've got your Trezor, the key is in there, it's protected with a pin, maybe a passphrase, but what about the wallet words? There's 24 unencrypted English words that if someone were to recover them, they've got your key, they don't need your Trezor. How do you protect those? Um, in the past, you know, Unchained has advocated for our customers, take simple precautions, maybe cut them in half. You know, the Trezor comes with a nice little foldable thing with two halves, cut them in half, take one half, put it in one location, take another half, put it in a different location. That's a really simple, if you want, way to achieve Shamir sharding, right? Two of two, if you'd like. Um, it just, but it's not a very defensible solution because partly if someone gets one half, they now know half your wallet words. And with half of your wallet words, they can probably crack the other half potentially. You force that, right? Exactly, yeah. right? Um, and you can always make them more, you can split it into four parts. But it's an imperfect solution. A much better solution is to just have Shamir sharding. That wasn't really technically feasible <clears throat> in a Trezor before because the whole point of a Trezor is your key material is never on a computer. If you were able to put your key material on a computer, yeah, you could run you know, a standard Shamir sharding thing on it and then now you'd have your shards and you could save those, but you've now imported your keys into a general purpose computer in order to run that algorithm. So what's cool about Slip39 running on the Model T is you don't need to do that step. You can just have the Model T do all that work. So it can take your key and split it up into all your shares. Each share, by the way, looks like a set of wallet words. It's just English words. Um, so it's a, it's a familiar form factor. And then you just go protect, you go put those three of five shards or those 10 of 20, shards, whatever you'd like in various places. And you now get all the benefits of Shamir sharding, which is, which is super nice. Even better when you want to recover your Trezor. Let's, let's say you, you, you can now travel uh, to shard location after shard location and re incrementally recover one shard, two shards, three shards. Once you have enough shards, your treasure kind of turns on and now you've got the key and it's working as normal. It's a really cool ability, but that's really for individuals, right? Um, for a group setting, uh, the treasure is still an awkward form factor because it's a device, it's literally held in the hand of one person. It's got a couple buttons there. It's not designed for groups of people to use simultaneously. That's part of where uh, Unchained's contribution in Hermit kind of shows up. So Hermit is our implementation of an offline, command line only wallet designed for high security organizations like ours that also leverages Slip39. So the core sharding stuff is the same as you're going to see in a Trezor Model T, which is really exciting because it means they're interoperable. But the difference is that Hermit is a, frankly, difficult to use esoteric piece of software designed for organizations like mine. Uh, where, where we are forced to protect a single key and where we are an organization that has to do it and deal with things like employee turnover, uh, signing schedules, et cetera, et cetera. So what's cool about Hermit is unlike a Trezor, it, once the, the, shards, uh, the shards that are co-located on a Hermit machine, think of it as a laptop that you've done some surgery to, you've removed Wi-Fi cards, you've removed Bluetooth. You've essentially created, if you want, your own home-rolled HSM high security module here, right? That it's a machine in which you know all the parts, you know where everything is, there's no way in or out other than let's say a camera and a, and a screen. That's how Hermit works, it uses QR codes. So you've kind of got this custom computing environment and then what Hermit does is it, assume, it understands that multiple people are probably gonna be using this concurrently. So you can set up a quorum of let's say three signers, five signers, whatever you'd like, are required at all times to show up concurrently, unlock the Hermit installation. It's got a bunch of really cool features like dead man switches and like all this interesting stuff. Um, but it's fundamentally just a different form factor designed for groups of people to be signing concurrently, which is just fundamentally different than an individual using a hardware wallet. Wow. No, it's crazy how intricate these things are going to get. So mm -hmm. 
I also want to describe something really cool that we've been working and playing with. Uh, maybe Bef some. Go ahead. Before you get into that, yeah. I'm gonna fix your mic because it's like sinking on you. Oh my god. Your was that just me? No, no, no. It's, I got here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh -huh. Let me just do this guy. All right. right. Mic fix. Is that better? Yeah, very cool. Um, this is just a cool little idea that we've been playing with at the office. I only bring it up just because I'm hoping some, some listeners here will, will want to work on something like this. But the, So the way Hermit communicates with the external world is it needs, uh, it uses QR codes. So you have to pass in all the information about the transaction you'd like to sign, uh, what the UTXOs were, um, the balances, the amounts, and then Hermit has the keys and it'll sign for you. This is uh, a pattern that's emerging of taking signing technology and splitting it up into various parts. So you might have like a transaction planner, that's the thing that's online and it's capable of talking to the internet, talking to human beings via mobile device or whatever, it's the thing that's connected. And then you might have consensus, that might be your Bitcoin node, maybe you use a block explorer, whatever, that's the thing that understands the state of Bitcoin. And then you have something which manages keys. Now, something like Electrum does all of that in one place. Like Electrum has consensus code to like run Electrum server and figure out what the state of the blockchain is. It obviously writes transactions and it can actually even manage a key for you in software if you'd like. Now that makes sense because Electrum has been around for a long time, let's just bundle everything together. But I think the second generation of technology here is, is about unbundling. So dedicated like consensus solutions like, you know, in the Ethereum world, things like Infura and the Bitcoin world, <laughs> the, the, the chortle in the Bitcoin world, that's just running a node, right? Can we even call it Infura anymore? Consensus Botham. They're part You're of right. It's probably now. a new thing. I don't know. I don't use yeah. Infura. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then Hermit really represents, it, it doesn't know consensus because it's not connected to a node because it can't be, it's offline and it can't really plan transactions because it's just a command line. Well, it's really just about protecting the keys. And I'll talk about Caravan, which is another project that we're coming out with soon. That's more of a transaction planner. But coming back to Hermit, um, it, the reason we chose that name is because it feels like this really, you know, cut off from society, you know, thing. It lives in a really secure physical location. Um, there's sort of a challenge process you have to get through and putting passwords and all this to unlock it. So there's this like challenge and then the Hermit will like converse with you, right? So how do you talk to it? You talk to it with QR codes. But one of the cool things we've been working on is this idea that um, we kind of want to set up uh, Diffie-Hellman key exchange to set up a HTTPS connection, if you'd like, a secure channel between, um, let's say, your phone or some computing device you've brought into the secure location and the Hermit machine. So today, you bring in paper or you bring in a computing device that can display a QR code. Hermit reads that via its camera. It'll sign. It'll display you a QR code. You capture that. Now you have a signed transaction, which you can go and broadcast later. The, th the thing we're working on now is instead of using QR codes, the problem being that QR codes are packets of data, they're limited in size. You can only fit so much UTXOs, if you'd like, into a single QR code. Um, we want to turn it into an audio signal. So like old school 90s like modems, you know what I mean? Like where, exactly, exactly. And, um, and literally do Diffie-Hellman key exchange. So even if people are overhearing the noises that are being made by Hermit and the other device you've brought in, because of basically the same mechanism that sets up- They can up only be decrypted at the end spot or something? If you have, you need a secret that lives on each machine. So yeah. the idea would be you'd roll onto the Hermit installation, unlock it, boot it up, you get your machine and you say go, and they would connect to each other and they'd do this Diffie-Hellman key exchange, like squeaking and squawking if you'd like. Taking it to the audio realm is something I have never even thought of. It, it, well, it's because audio is fun fundamentally streaming 
right? So instead of having to build some kind of animated QR code craziness, we just get to stream all the bytes we'd like. As many UTXOs need to be transmitted can be transmitted. As many signatures need to be signature signed can be transmitted back. It's all over this encrypted channel. So even if you mic and, and like record everything that happens, you won't, unless you literally have the same devices, be able to decrypt any of it. I thought radio waves was uh, was the peak of, of the waves. Yeah, now the, audio the best waves. part about this, though, is we started looking like, who has written code like this before? And it turns out there's this entire community of like CB radio programmers who are basically um, using headphone jacks and stuff to transmit radio signals. And they've written all these great libraries to like get you off the ground in this audio signal processing space, which is really cool. I think Beautyon used to be into this type of shit, actually. Mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't surprise me. And this is a, this is a good scheme. I, and I, I love the old school, just like squawk and squeak, like, yeah. you know, picture of it. That, uh, I never knew that was even possible, let alone being worked on. That's, mm -hmm. That would be crazy. Like, yeah. So anybody could hear these sounds, but not receive the message unless they had the secret on their end. Right. Which is a little bit distinct than the QR codes. The QR codes are in plain text. And so you have to flash them and they'll be read and there's nothing secret in them. They just contain transaction requests and then signatures, which will wind up on the blockchain. But nonetheless, they can be exfiltrated, and worse, they're packets of data, so they have a limited size. Yeah, and so is this similar to what, this is like exactly what Justin did with the BitBoy, right? Like that was pure QR codes. It's really, it's really similar. Justin, who lives in Austin, we hang out quite a bit, uh, he and Unchained have clearly been working on a lot of parallel projects, so we're, try, we're trying to sort out ways that we can work together a little bit and maybe duplicate a little bit less effort, but... No, Justin has been awesome um, in terms of thinking about all the same things we're thinking about, like offline air-gapped hardware wallets, Slip39, um, uh, working directly in multi-sig with hardware wallets and Bitcoin D. These are all really valuable, like like interstitial areas to like write new code in. What do we got? We got some bad disturbances. Is your phone ringing in your pocket? No, it is over here. Though. I can move it over That's there. That's what it was. Yeah. Put it in airplane mode. Um, sorry for that disturbance, freaks. Uh, minute thirty-one, thirty. We'll see if I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thirty-one, thirty. That's not hard. Thirty-one, thirty. Start the countdown from thirty-one, Marty, and you'll find the disturbance in the force. Um, but transitioning. Mm -hmm. Uh, talking about Justin Moon and Austin. Like, how's the Austin Bitcoin scene been? It seems oh like God, the meetups have been incredible. Lately. It's amazing. I, I I feel like Austin has benefited greatly from its. I don't know. Think about it. Like, why would you, what kind of person is into Bitcoin, right? What else are they into? They're into technology, freedom, guns, libertarian politics, um, barbecue. Uh, I'm generalizing and stereotyping here. There's a lot of nonconformist Bitcoiners, which I love. But put those. Let's shout out to our Bitcoin vegans. Uh, yeah, Matt no, Corallo. Uh, there are yeah. a few others out there. Chanelli, I think. Some is on my one. team. Some of the best. Some of the best <laughs> folks in the space are actually vegans, which is which is uh, great. But uh, if, if you put all together those stereotypes together, I feel like Austin really has it, man. Like we're in the middle of Texas. We've always had a don't tread on me kind of spirit. But yet at the same time, Austin, in, I think in distinction to the rest of Texas, has been oftentimes really progressive in terms of politics, technology, transformative changes. Um, it's just a really good breeding grounds, I think, for the kinds of um, ideas that lead you to become a Bitcoiner. So we've always had that. And I think piling on top of that is people fleeing California, people leaving more expensive cities to find like better weather, more chill people, um, a flip flop and t-shirt kind of lifestyle. Um, so all of that just put together, man, it's a great place for Bitcoiners and more and more are coming there. I think every month. And you guys, some, some great mind share down there. Like when, uh, 
I mean, it's not Austin, but we met in Dallas uh, earlier this mm-hmm. summer. And that event you guys threw was filled with some heavy hitters. Brian Bishop was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys have Andrew Polstra yep. uh, in the city as well. And oh, yeah. The we've Texas. got Jimmy. We've got Tour de Meester lives down there. Um, the Unchained office, I think, is one of the more Bitcoin-oriented companies in Austin. Uh, it's definitely turned into like where a lot of the meetups are happening, and that's just great for me because I live across the street. So <laughs> it's, it's a good life. Everything since oh, yeah. What's that like working across the street? Oh my god, dude, it's amazing. Uh, Joe, my co-founder Joe and I, we kind of live across the street from each other, and uh, when we started the company, like the responsible thing to do was to get like a cheap office, like somewhere in like the business park, you know, up north in the city. And instead, we took the expensive office downtown next to our houses, and it's made all the difference. Quality life is huge when mm-hmm. you don't have to commute. The, the, the added commute to each day is, uh, it adds up. There's hours in traffic. There's hours commute. I will say there's a perverse aspect, though. When your commute has been minimized to be like three minutes, you're like, oh, why not two? Why can't this elevator move a bit faster? Oh, I've cut it down to that. I go from my bed to 10 feet away to my desk, and that's where... That's where my workstation is. I mean, it is hack. actually. I've been working from home for a year and a half now, and the quality of life is, yeah, is exponentially better. Like mm-hmm. Just being able to feel like you can fucking leave the cube whenever, and the cube is in your apartment. So. Poop at your own house. Yes, poop at your own house. Uh, you can work in your boxer sometimes. Not that I would advise it, but I would advise it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Be free. <laughs> Be free. It's true. Um, actually. Yeah. Uh, too much information, but I'm not a big underwear guy. Um, so I don't even know why I said work in my boxers. I usually don't even wear them. Be free, be free here. Freaks. We're two pilsners in on these pre noon beers. Actually we're taking post noon sips now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I want to circle back to that event you threw in Dallas. Uh, for those of you freaks who are not abreast of this event, it was the day before the BitBlock Boom Conference in Dallas earlier this summer, and I just thought it was a great event. Like back to back, Parker did a great job of lining up speakers, and oh, then, yeah. more importantly, uh, in my opinion, the the uh, the audience was very engaged and filled with a lot of big Texas oil mm-hmm. oil men and money managers. I've and, really enjoyed because I'm not native Texan. I don't know much about the energy industry, but I've really enjoyed watching some of the more progressive um, and technology minded energy investors, like really taking to Bitcoin and getting it. You know, there's a, there's a sort of like Texas wildcatter commodity understanding investor type that gets that like volatility is an opportunity and not something to run from. Um, and I think one of my favorite uh, people in that space is a gentleman named Gideon Powell, who's shout out to Gideon, yeah, my man Gideon, um, who's just super forward thinking about this. Um, <clears throat> turned me on to. And he's very passionate. Always passionate. Always, always passionate, and always like. It, it's like this image of of I think what I wish, you know, as as a non-native Texan, it's what I wish more Texans would be like. It's like this amazing combination of independence, libertarian politics, like moral compass, and being technologically forward thinking. Like I think. Just talking to get in, in in casual conversations, he's sort of been like, well, you know, my family's always been in the energy industry and oil. Like, will my grandkids do that? Probably not. Just having like the courage to to see the world changing is a big deal. And then to ask, well, what should we be doing instead? And then actually following through and making huge investments and working your butt off to build like massive installations for Bitcoin mining. That's a really that's an incredible transition. Like, am I allowed to say like he had a helping hand in the layer one? 
stuff. Am I allowed to say that? That's this is my understanding. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how much we should say about it, but like, yeah, it's I, they're having they're being tremendously successful and they're laying a lot of ground, I think, for other people who are coming in and just appreciating their expertise and hard work. And there's just something really cool about harvesting free energy from the plains of West Texas, bringing jobs and money to like an area which needs it, and uh, just making Bitcoin with it, man. That's a really interesting and cool vision. Yeah, and it's. It's crazy to see, it's it's always been um this is something I've been fascinated about mining and uh the efficiencies that bitcoin mining can create for these oil and gas producers mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. and it's crazy to me that it's taken the the oil and gas producers to have this aha moment but it feels like we're almost near a tipping point where they're realizing the efficiencies that can be gained like the New York Times mm-hmm. wrote an article a couple of weeks ago at this point they were lambasting uh, BP and Exxon for for flaring less than 25% of their excess supply. And that means uh, 75% is just being expended. Just wasted. Yeah, just yeah. wasted. Um, so there's obviously efficiencies to be gained. And it's, it's fun watching these oil companies have aha moments. And I know, they, I don't know what the situation in Texas is, but I, I remember my last cube job, I actually worked at a valuations firm where, mm-hmm. we, where we did a lot of... Uh, portfolio valuation for private equity and venture capitalist funds invested in mid-market companies that weren't public yet. And a lot of these companies were oil companies and you get a peek into their books and, and the way they take out loans. And a lot of these oil producers, especially in middle America, took out a lot of pretty big loans with crazy interest rates and the contingent, <clears throat> what was contingent on them getting those loans was basically predicting that, uh, the price of a barrel of oil would be at a certain point. And usually mm-hmm. it was between 80 and a hundred dollars from what I was looking at. So you have a lot of these oil companies that took out a shit ton of money, uh, like five, six years ago thinking that peak oil was here and we were going to, we were going to go to like above a hundred dollars, uh, a barrel. And now that has not come to fruition. Oil prices are cratering. And so is natural gas prices. And, uh, there, there is a mad dash for these efficiencies and, and more revenue and Bitcoin just makes sense. I mean, it does, but I think you need to be someone like a Gideon to see it, right? right. Like it's because, I mean, to, to be fair, it's also in tiny market. We're talking about 150 billion or $200 billion market cap or something like this. How much revenue is really made daily by miners on the order of millions, tens of millions of dollars that's very small for like the energy industry to, to, to use as like a sink for wasted energy. Like, but that's just today. And yeah. I think the ones that learn how to do it first are going to have some serious advantages. Um, what I just like is I, I think a lot of people have been saying it. I've been saying it. I've heard it on your show, but like Bitcoin and the energy industry are going to get closer and closer together that what we think of as energy production and Bitcoin mining are two separate industries today. I don't think that's the case 20 or 30 years from now. And I think the layer one investment is like a huge signal in that direction. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's again, it just creates these efficiencies in the concept of leveling out the grid just having a sort of steady demand Bitcoin can mm-hmm. make that happen right? or, or increase or just or not even steady demand, increasing the demand function, right? Like places where energy was not or steady production. Yeah. Of energy, it wasn't right? valuable to capture that energy because the people in West Texas weren't going to use it for anything. And it would cost a lot to ship it to a place with people, but you can just make the Bitcoin there. And that, that, that fact that Bitcoin helps us go harvest energy that we weren't going to harvest. Otherwise is like this, it, it's a revolutionary like change for the energy sector, I think. 
Yeah, because what's their biggest problem is transportation. You cut the, they don't, they can't transport the excess supply. If they were to, they would have to build pipes. Like we mm -hmm. hear all about these pipelines mm -hmm. going hundreds mm -hmm. of miles. You cut the potential travel distance down from hundreds of miles to feet, and it just makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's happening. I think. I mean, layer one's an example. It's happening. Gideon is hard at work in Texas, uh, creating more layer ones. And it, Texas is not the only state in the union that's 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 thinking about this as well. There's there's uh, uh, West Texas, the Permian Basin, right? Bracken's more up north, right? Don't know. Yeah, somewhere in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> Texas is a Permian Basin. I think Bracken, the Bracken Basin. I think people are thinking about it as well. Um, where's Bracken? Alaska. I could be wrong. I don't. I'm not uh, well versed on my basins mm -hmm. right now. Um, but it is crazy. We're trying to create these. Uh, crazy energy efficiencies on Earth so that we can go to space. Oh, yeah. Freight transition into the space. That was article. the transition. Yeah, we're just <laughs> hungry for energy, man. <laughs> so we become a type one civilization first, and then we can go into space. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your space article, man. It was fascinating. Yeah. Um, we'll pull up the title right here Bitcoin astrology. Astronomy, excuse me. Bitcoin <laughs> definitely astro not astrology. Definitely not astrology. <laughs> but my favorite part about this, so it's a. It's a sci-fi futuristic piece mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you assume that we are in a big uh, society that has Bitcoinized mm -hmm. and uh, mining is uh, proliferated like we just described. And the energy industry has been conjoined with it and yes. everything. Yeah. And where do we do it from there? And I, the, my favorite part about this article, I just want to drop this before you dive into it, was uh, I think it did a really good job of describing the concept of center of hash and that's always something been like I've heard it the the the, the phrase center of hash uh, on and off throughout the years. I'm like, oh, what does that even mean? But I think you really drove home the concept and really helped me understand uh, the physics that come into Bitcoin mining and, mm -hmm. and the the physics that come into this messaging protocol. So let's dive into it. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. The last time we got drunk and recorded, <laughs> there was some space talk, um, and it's been brewing for a while. And I, on some level, it's fundamentally silly for me to be working on, on this or thinking about these issues or writing um, hash war simulation code or anything like this. But at the same time, man, like I got into this industry because it's fun, and this is fun to think about. Um, it helps me sometimes when I'm like solving a stupid bug with like the website or dealing with some like mundane just issue of just running a business uh, to like, you know, get into the underpants mode at the house, like dig in for a weekend and really think about uh, a speculative version of the future. Um, and it's just been really fun. And I think the core themes that I try to follow through this article are, are like we were just talking about, like, let's just project forward if we keep if we're this hungry for energy and, and bitcoin makes us hungry for energy how will that affect our society as we grow um and i, I sort of purposefully framed this article about about mars and musk coin um just because i think you know that's a little bit in the news today with elon and all his crazy plans and um i don't know if people are elon fans or or foes here um i just find him to be a compelling person i don't invest in his businesses but um, um. I, I'm like on the fence about Elon, yeah. but I have more of a Bezonian. Is that what you say? I, I agree more with Jeff Bezos. So we do, we should do a moon, uh, a moon, uh, camp first and then explore planets from there. Because the way I understand it, you would know this better than mm -hmm. I, it's easier to launch rockets off the moon than it would be earth. So absolutely. Yeah. There's a, I don't know if anybody plays Kerbal space program, but I feel like a lot of my 
um, understanding about orbital mechanics comes from Kerbal Space Program. But I will say there's a great guy to follow online if you don't. His name is Robert Zubrin. He's like a, just an amazing thinker about humanity and space. And uh, I'll just make the point that he's not a big fan of uh, moon bases as a route to the outer planets because okay. he kind of views them as like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, going in the wrong direction on the highway for a bit to just pick up some Starbucks and then get on the road trip where it's like, oh, it actually delays you. Just conceptually, it made sense, makes sense to me. It does, in the sense that the moon is closer to us and therefore seems on the way. But there's a certain just like, if you could perceive like the gravitational potential energy of the solar system, like just directly, and you could see all the hills and valleys of where you're going, you'd realize you got to climb up this big hill to get to the moon, so to speak, and then you got to climb back out. And it might be easier while you're on the plains to just head down the valley and go to Mars directly. Um, that doesn't mean logistically it's not, I'm speaking more in terms of like the efficiencies of orbital mechanics. It doesn't necessarily mean that logistically it's not a smart idea to establish moon bases and get good um, at space travel when we're two light seconds away as compared to 20 minutes away, right? Um, but there are some questions around it. Hey, maybe both will happen. I think they both should. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's describe how this affects Bitcoin. Like if we do move into the solar mm -hmm. system beyond Earth. I think to me, the, the fundamental thing, I, I, it, it started out as a debate internally at Unchained, which was basically, because we have these debates, it turns out, on Slack quite a bit. Um, like, how big is the reach of Bitcoin was basically the, argue, the question, right? Like, because there's articles that I refer to um, in my own article on Bitcoin astronomy. Um, there were people have discussed, uh, you know, what is it like? I mean, I'm not the first person to, to drink and speculate about Bitcoin in space, right? Um, uh, there, there's a, a great article that talks about how Bitcoin mining will probably never happen outside of the earth just because of the finite travel time or finite speed of light ultimately. And that's something I confirm in this article, but having read that article, um, a little bit that became that started the debate on Unchained is because like Unchained has a lot of Bitcoin maximalist types and it's got you know other people that aren't so much Bitcoin maximalist so it's a great discussion because it's a little bit of a proxy for the battle on Earth if you'd like right where <laughs> if, uh, if what what you think happens 200 years from now in your speculations about humans in space I think is partly dictated sometimes by your crypto politics today on earth a little bit. Um, that's certainly what I learned with the reception to this article, which you I shit coiner. <laughs> I'm a shit coiner. <laughs> the must coin. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the label. Um, and it really just boils down to, I think, uh, you're pre-selling this a few hundred years. It's, yeah, no, it's, I see. Get in front of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that was my it. secret hope is that Elon Musk would read this article and then, uh, somehow, you know, enact this plan if it wasn't already his plan well for the freaks out there who haven't read it let's describe why a musk coin would be needed in right your, in your uh in your uh not idea in your opinion so let me just to summarize clark's article which i think he put it really cleanly is it boils down to when you're far away from earth let's say all most of the mining is happening on earth for whatever reason and you know you're elon musk or you're whatever space colony you're, you're on mars you just got set up there you got some nice buildings and stuff and you're, you want to participate economically um, with the rest of the hyper-Bitcoinized humanity, right? Which means you're sending Bitcoin transactions and stuff back and forth um, between Earth and Mars. That's like a 20-minute to 45-minute journey, depending on you know, how far away Mars is in its orbit and whether it's a single trip or a round trip for, for a signal to go there and back. Um, with that kind of a delay, what winds up happening is it's really simple. Like, or let's say everyone is even and we've sort of got you know, the same number of blocks on both sides and the miners on both sides are like in sync, um, 
let's even argue that Mars finds a block first. They're unlikely to find the block first because almost certainly they have less hash rate, right? Just and everything is kind of linear in hash rate. So if Earth has 100 times the hash rate, they're going to find roughly 100 times as many blocks as, as Mars does. But let's just argue that Mars finds a block. They transmit it to Earth because they've got to get it to Earth if it's to count, right? It's got to get into the rest of the blockchain. It takes 45 minutes to get to Earth. In those 45 minutes, how many more blocks have, has Earth found? Like a lot more because they have way more hash rate. So by the time the, the, the new Martian block shows up, all these Earth miners are like, that was 45 minutes ago, dude. There's six more blocks on the chain right now and it just gets rejected. And Mars then takes another you know, 20 minutes for that signal of the rejection to get back to Mars. And meanwhile, all these blocks Earth has been mining are still on their way there. And so it's just, they're too far away and they have too little hash rate to really make a difference. And so that was the interesting fact to me. It's like, that's an easy thing to say and it's intuitive, but I really wanted to measure it. And so I wrote some code to kind of simulate Earth and Mars having hash battles. Um, and I confirmed like that basic supposition, right? Which is that yes, indeed, as Mars, as you get further and further away, and that's kind of the main plot of the article, as you get further and further away from quote unquote, the center of hash, where most of the hash rate is located, it becomes your, your ability to participate as a miner in the network becomes more and more suppressed. So let's magnify in on the center of hash, like, cause the center of hash is a uh, affords miners certain advantages on Earth too, right? Correct. Yeah, it's basically like a defensive mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. The closer you are to the center of hash, the more the easier it is for you to get consensus with everybody else. And the center of hash is not one static place, right? It's, it's dynamic. It's yes. kind of like the center of mass or the center of inertia or the center of gravity. It's a mathematically defined point, which is a function of all the things that are happening in the system, right? So the, the center of mass of the Earth is near the center of the Earth. The center of mass of a barbell is going to be in the middle of the bar. The center of mass of something asymmetric is going to be closer to the fat end. Same thing with the center of hash, except we're not adding up kilograms, we're adding up, um, you know, hashes per second here. And depending on where miners are located today, the center of hash is almost certainly near the center of the earth because it's like halfway between America, China, Europe, wherever you'd like. The question is, as humanity expands to like the moon, to Mars, the asteroid belt, where is that center of hash? And what we're forced to conclude based on, you know, the simulations that I've run and the intuitive reasoning is it's really hard for the center of mass, excuse me, hash to move much further away than where it is already. It's sort of like it's got some inertia. It's kind of stuck there. Gravity. Right? Uh, a little bit. Like ha- like economic gravity. It's really hard to get miners to move in concert somewhere else, like Indian wedding guests kind of a thing. <laughs> um, and so they're just going to stay where they're at because that's the most locally, economically best decision for them is continue to stay close to where all the action is. A little bit, it's a little bit like how certain cities become like the top tier for an industry. Like if you're doing HFT, like you need to be in New York or London. Uh, it doesn't uh, make sense yeah, to be in Denver. That's what, uh, well... Hopefully not anymore, because uh, that's what Flash Boys, Michael Lewis, one of Michael Lewis's mm-hmm. books. But yeah, so like the the way high frequency trading works, you literally have people buying property as close to the New York Stock Exchange as possible because the fiber optic cables that uh, mm-hmm. feed the data to the servers in the New York Stock Exchange use lasers and speed of light is finite and, yes. and shockingly slow it yes. turns out like it's a big number but when that it is, comes to electronics that and is being fixed in the stock market though or at least bats is trying to fix it where they sort of have like a, a something that levels the playing field mm-hmm. from from a distance perspective like if you're closer you may have to like wave a little bit they have like longer wires or something literally it's i like want to come back wire. to that theme because i think bitcoin could really benefit from geographic awareness like that in really? various ways um but it's really it's hard to engineer that but you know, I want to come back to that idea. 
But at least, at least in Bitcoin astronomy and Mars and the, and the struggle for Bitcoin, what I was forced to conclude is like, look, so the, I agree with prior commentators in this space that Mars is never going to be able to develop a mining industry. But then the real question becomes, is that a problem? And I think the way we've been discussing Gideon's projects, the, the merging of the energy infrastructure with the Bitcoin mining infrastructure, I see a lot of net positives to that. Um, I see a lot of structurally positive elements to aligning economic incentives directly with energy production. And I think in the article, I speculate about some of the future benefits of that on you know, Earth and, and what, how good it will be for us you know, globally to unite these ideas. Should Martians in the future speculatively accept not having that advantage? And that's kind of like the jumping off point for the middle part of the article. Yeah, so it's basically uh, Martians can only add transactions to the blockchain. They can't mine them. Yeah. Can they, they can be Bitcoiners. They can use it, but they can never mine. Yes, um, which is an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. And the, the, uh, the lust for sovereignty, right? And you get a, you get a, you get a situation your uh piece you get a situation where the martians are like we're not being represented you have like a quasi uh taxation without representation situation for the martians. Or like why why are all our settlement activities like accumulating with rich bastard earth miners who oppress us kind of thing right i don't know if you follow the expanse but it's fun to to contemplate like political tension between these environments and i think it's emerging today this idea that bitcoin is a political technology but i think in 200 years if the initial givens and speculations of this article are correct. Bitcoin is fundamentally a political technology. It's well understood to be that. And to claim that your entire society has no role to play in the consensus building of that political technology might be a very scary, um, you know, outcome for, for Martians. Yeah. And so the justification for the creation of other blockchains is the fact that they're too far away from the center of hash and not because they have different, uh, functionalities or Mm -hmm. or uh uh, they might even be the same they might be exactly the same and i think that's the part that i i really love that's the conclusion i most enjoyed reaching in this article because i i view myself i don't really like to label bitcoin maximalists i don't like joining things but i'm i believe in bitcoin as like the solution right now and you know fuck it if bitcoin changes its plans i won't like bitcoin anymore but i like where it is right now i like the conservatism the fixed supply like the focus on security proof of work these are all big parts of what i value in bitcoin so it's very and i don't value altcoins greatly personally um so it's very interesting for me to reach the conclusion that like inevitably as we expand we will have to build new blockchains and that maybe the only good reason to build a new blockchain is the simple statement that I'm literally light hours away from that other one and it's not working well for me. And it's so fucking meta. We're getting so cosmic here too, because it's literally like a chain to another chain, right? Like you're like, you can hook up and it may be or like atomic swaps between chains. Like if we are, we are assuming that we're traveling between planets Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But I certainly, if we're, let's say this happens and Mars is able to like build their own chain. Yes, we would have cross-chain atomic swaps. Like, it, would there be a thing on the universal uh, or the galactic uh, layer where, so like our big beef here on Earth is that we have like a, basically a quasi-barter system of currencies. Will that exist in the, in the galactic layer too? Like, will, is there a, a sound end-all, be-all currency in the galaxy that we don't know of yet? Maybe. I don't know. 
so I mean, I think that's the interesting part here is right? like, if you analyze like, why is this situation occurring? Why can't Martians mine? Like where did this problem arise from? It arises in the selection of 10 minutes by Satoshi as the convergence time for the blockchain. Now you can argue Satoshi's a fool and should have made it an hour or five hours or whatever you'd like so it could encompass the whole solar system. And indeed, if it were like many hours long, the block time, then Martians would be able to mine because it wouldn't matter that they're like 20, 30 minutes out of sync in the same way that it doesn't matter that one connection in China is 15 seconds delayed from a connection in New York. Um, that, 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 that delay is not meaningful on the scale of the block time. But the problem would have just arisen at a different planet. It would have arisen at Pluto. And if you don't believe that, if you if you believe that you could have somehow arranged it to work for the whole solar system, that's fine. But just go forward another ten thousand years. What happens when we're not in the solar system? When we're out at Alpha Centauri, and it's four years to get a signal one way, eight years to get a round trip, you know, packet. At that point, our, our, it starts to become less and less believable that Bitcoin at 10 minutes or whatever block time you want is going to span that entire spatial volume. And I think that's really the insight here is that Bitcoin and any blockchain at all, in fact, that relies upon communication and no centralized point and proof of work and all these core ideas about Bitcoin is fundamentally an object that has a certain spatial size. And I think that's underappreciated perhaps. And it doesn't matter today because the spatial size that we care about is less than like two light seconds in diameter. Earth is a tiny place and we all live here. But in the future, as we expand, we will cross that horizon and we will be further out than Bitcoin's utility to us. Yeah. It's like, again, it's like a meta gravitational pull, right? Almost. And it's, it's crazy to think about. And, uh, like I, this is another big topic in the news this week. I'm actually happy to have you here to pick your brain about it. Like, how does quantum computing can fuck with all this mm -hmm. shit? Mm -hmm. is, is Bitcoin doomed? Is Bitcoin doomed? Um, Bitcoin will certainly be doomed later than everything else. I would say. <laughs> um, my own like quick answer to the quantum thing is just like it's important to remember that Bitcoin has multiple layers of, if you'd like, encryption or um, protection. The first layer is this idea that addresses represent hashes of redeem scripts. And a hash is a very particular kind of mathematical construct. It's a one-way function, it's asymmetric, you kind of lose information, it's sort of random, it mixes up its inputs and randomly sprays them out over the space of outputs. That's a, that's a particular kind of mathematical object. And then within the redeem script, so it's not enough, obviously, if you have an address to be able to get to its redeem script, you also need the private keys that can sign for the uh, the code that the redeem script represents. That is, you know, ECDSA signatures. That's fundamentally public private key cryptography. That second part, that's the part that quantum computers to, uh, are theoretically able to suborn. And what's interesting about Bitcoin as compared to HTTPS or your credit cards or various other cryptographic things in your life is that it has these two layers. And so fundamentally, Quantum computing, as we understand it today, is really only capable of attacking that second kind of encryption, public-private key cryptography. And so many other things will fail before Bitcoin kind of fails because Bitcoin has this additional layer of protection. I, I'm not enough of a historian to know how much that additional layer of protection was designed purposefully to protect against quantum computing, but the point is that it does. Quantum computers do not 
know how to hash or reverse hashes faster than traditional computers, at least as far as we understand algorithms today. So the important part is if you've not spent from your Bitcoin address, it's unlikely to be attackable by a quantum computer. Also, Bitcoin mining is unlikely to be subverted by quantum computers, which come in and, and have vastly greater ability to mine blocks. But it is true that as quantum computers become more sophisticated, the public-private key cryptography that Bitcoin relies upon to guard balances, you know, once you know the redeem script, that is up for cracking and hacking. And I think that is scary. Is there a way to become quantum resistant? Yes, there are known algorithms which more or less replicate the parts of the properties of public-private key cryptography that are known to be quantum resistant today, they have trade-offs. They're not as fast, as easy to compute, as space efficient as the existing algorithms that we currently use, but they're quantum resistant. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. I, I imagine it's one of those things where you know, how much energy has been spent on designing quantum resistant encryption algorithms probably not as much as will be spent when quantum computers are realistic threats. Now, how far are we away from that, that era? I think, I think shorter than people want to believe, but still a while away. <laughs> how long is that? I don't know, man. <laughs> like, realistically, I don't think anybody uses, like, ECDSA-type signatures or public-private key cryptography the way we do it today. I think, realistically, within five to ten years, we oh, stop doing it that way. Really? We, we, we start we start having to deal with this situation. Um, yeah, absolutely. So have you been following, uh, like, I mean, the reason this conversation came up most recently because of Google's mm -hmm, uh, exactly. claim yep, yep. is that uh, PR, like apparently they've been running one specific function just to prove something and it may be mm -hmm. uh, catering to uh, a certain conclusion. But um, what are your thoughts on, on the Google news? I'm, I'm repeating thoughts that I have read elsewhere, I'll be honest. I think the best person to follow in this space is a gentleman named Scott Aronson, actually also in Austin. He's a longtime quantum uh, computing researcher that, like, frankly, uh, you know, I've been following for a very, very long time. And, and he's just consistently, well, one, he's an amazing researcher, and then two, consistently writes some of the best popular and accessible content about quantum computing, um, computing classes, and increasingly like these kind of intersections with cryptography. Um, and it's interesting, like his, he has a great art, he has a great blog post which talks about his reaction to the quantum supremacy news out of Google. And it's interesting because he, I think like me, is worried. He's basically saying, this is a big deal. We need to be thinking about ways to start focusing on how to get past this threat because the fact that Google has, has demonstrated whatever they've demonstrated, which we can get into in a second, is it's kind of like the clarion call. It's like this is this shit is happening. Like, why is it such a threat though? If it's something that humans would leverage, right? It was like quantum computing would be a tool that we use, or mm. would it be something that turns into uh, AI and starts fucking? It's, with it's us? more that it breaks a bunch of assumptions that we have around how information can be securely exchanged on the internet. Then why are we trying to discover it? Uh, <laughs> because we believe it will be extremely useful for all sorts of other things that we want to do. Like the, the goal of quantum computing is not to be able to break existing credit card payment services. The goal is to have vastly more powerful computers. And if you believe Scott Aronson, well, he, then go ahead. Shouldn't the goal be to break all that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on some level, like, it's healthy. It's good, right? Like we, our universe is quantum and we're so restricted from that. Like we don't typically 
there's very few moments or times in our macroscopic giant lives that we're forced to confront the fact that the universe is quantum mechanical in, in its fundamental nature. This is really cool because these are, if you really think about it, the way the quantum computers work is insane. It doesn't make any sense from, do we become gods when that happens? We become, uh, we put our fingers into the electrical socket. I feel like we're, we don't know what we're going to find in there, but it's going to mess us up a little bit and that's okay. We'll engineer around it. Human beings are, are fundamentally clever creatures. That's actually funny. My wife and I walked to, uh, our old coffee shop in our old neighborhood this morning. We're walking back and just having this conversation. It's, we were saying like humans for being the most adaptable species that's ever existed on this planet for being the most adaptable to change. We hate change so much. It's some just, of us. Some. Yeah. Well, I think most of like, I feel like as we people, get older, yeah, more and more of us. Yeah. I agree. It's always the right kind of change though, right? Change yeah. that we want and that we're prepared for is easy to, to accept and changes that we didn't anticipate are very difficult. And the easiest response is to deny that they're happening, you know? And, and I think, Bitcoin really reveals that. It, it reveals like how open a person is, how open-minded they are to understanding a new way of, of things being. Um, to a certain extent, quantum computing is a little bit like that, like where the easiest response is like, I've been hearing this shit for fucking decades, man. Like what's new right now? Nothing's going to change. Like it's all the same. Um, your vote doesn't matter. It, you know, like all this stuff. It's easy to have that, that, that dismissive reaction. But I think Scott Aronson and myself personally, like, this is an interesting development. <clears throat> now, I think just just to be clear, like we're still super early. Like this this supremacy that that Google um, displayed is supremacy. The, the ability for quantum computer to calculate something a classical computer could not. But the thing that was calculated is a useless thing. It's not a thing that anybody wants to calculate. It's a problem designed to give the most advantages to quantum computers, and that's cool because they're they're doing it. But one thing I think is super interesting is what is their motivation. Like we asked a little bit about why are we writing quantum computing? Like there's a certain dick measuring contest of like, we're smart enough to have figured this out. This thing that we've been theorizing over for 30 years, we actually built it. Like that's cool, but what are you going to use it for? Right? I think Scott Aronson would argue that the, the chief use of quantum computing is to simulate quantum systems that indeed we speak of quantum computers as these tools that can help us break cryptography and like solve the traveling salesman problem or all sorts of great things. But realistically, his belief is that where they'll be most useful is things like, for example, predicting how proteins fold or predicting how actual quantum particles and molecules react in certain situations because one that's fundamentally quantum and classical computers, when they try to simulate that, do it very weirdly and inefficiently. A quantum computer could simulate that very, very directly. Is that an attempt to describe or uh, create? A little bit of both. Like okay. imagine like drug discovery, like, like on some level in theory, we know, you know, Schrodinger's equations, we know Newton's laws, we know all these detailed micro mechanical rules. Why can't we just predict what every possible drug would do? And the answer is it's, it gets complicated very quickly. We, we don't have the technology to simulate or predict as well as we'd like. Maybe quantum computing is that technology. So that's one of the incentives to go out and build a quantum computer. But recently I've been thinking more and more coming back to hyper Bitcoinization, the, there was an interesting poll on Twitter, which I think is forward thinking, like what do we do if and when quantum computing becomes really real and we have to consider Satoshi's hoard or all the lost P2PKH coins? Yeah, we talk about this a lot on Tales from the Crypt. Uh, Satoshi is just, his hoard is a huge quantum alarm system, basically. 
a big incentive to, to find quantum computing. And so that's least. the interesting question. Is it alarm system or is it an incentive or is it both? Yeah. Like what's it worth today? Five, seven percent of Bitcoin? No. Uh, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. One that's million. billions of dollars. Yeah, now, yeah. I think billions of dollars is too small of a target. Frankly, already billions of dollars have been invested into quantum computing, I'm sure. But probably not tens or hundreds of billions yet. And if any of you freaks are new to the podcast, the reason that Satoshi's coins are quantum alarm system is the way that they are. The, the private public key was set up. It's a pay-to-pub key. And since it lacks that first layer of hashing protection, yes. And then, uh, since Satoshi has left the pro did they implement this before he left? I don't think it was implemented before 2010, it was certainly wasn't common, yes. And so now we do to pay to pub key hash, mm -hmm. and that that H makes all the difference, right? <laughs> and so that affords, uh, so if you have your uh, coins and a th uh, even a legacy address, a three address, or a B1, you're gonna, you're gonna be paid to pub key hash, correct. I think almost everybody who's actively using Bitcoin today is safe from this. And that's yes. the challenge is that Satoshi left so early. Yeah. And yeah, so his coins are more susceptible to, they would be quantum breakable before most people's coins. And that is a fascinating thing. So most people, not most people, but John Newberry was the first person to describe this to me uh, about a year ago. Actually, I think, yeah, exactly a year ago. Like uh, maybe Satoshi is just like some, quantum alarm system created by the NSA or something like that because that would be like imagine if Bitcoin price keeps rising like it like it did yesterday mm -hmm. at some point mm -hmm. that incentive will be strong enough right and I think that's so interesting I, my favorite conspiracy theory is that Satoshi is a time traveler who came back in time to help prevent the rise of quantum computing or something like this well let's get like is it going to help us or like hurt us quantum computing overall yeah I don't know. It's like any technology. It'll help us, but it'll be a lot of growing pains. It, like Just even the, the cursory example of drug discovery. Imagine we were actually good at predicting what molecules did in our bodies. Like How amazingly better medicine and our technology overall would be. So like, net good. Like, Do you evolve to a whole different species and type of entity after that? Like, mm. Is this the singularity? No, not quite yet. No. I don't think so. This is just a really powerful thing that we have monkeyed our way into that we don't know what it is yet um what's your opinion marty what do you what i don't do you know. I'm what too, do you think i'm you think, too dumb like well, I should just... we fork his coins out should we let oh, it happen should um, we let them be stolen i think you gotta let it happen let it happen yeah i'm currently leaning on the forking side like like so, something like uh you know a soft or hard fork i don't know how sure i'm not sure how it would have to be implemented but that says like if your coins are older than n years and they are in p2pk or other quantum you know hackable sort of addresses we're just going to pretend they don't exist now the real that do you add that on that's the real question right is yeah. that do they not exist anymore and they're lost forever which is kind of my leaning or do we recycle them back into the supply i would lean towards that as well no yeah. i mean people have been i think you gotta think of the man in the coma too like, is this a uh, mm -hmm. system uh, as pure as we want it to be if we don't think of the man in the coma? And Satoshi may just be a man in the coma. You know, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Or in jail or, or whatever. In yeah. Unable to access their coins. Yeah. It's an interesting question, though, right? I mean, 5 to 7% of Bitcoin is, uh, is a lot of scratch today. Well, that's another question, too. Like, what if Satoshi is in jail or in a coma or something and he does wake up and want to spend his coins? Is that the end all be all of Bitcoin? I've, I've actually said this before. Like, I don't think so. I think if 
I'm not talking about quantum computing or anything like that, but if we do get to a truly uh, sci-fi, cypherpunk future where Bitcoin has certain assurances from a privacy point, mm-hmm. I could see Satoshi uh, basically contracting out work uh, to people around the world. And that was like a, a big theory that I liked a couple of years ago is that once Bitcoin hits like a few trillion uh dollar market cap mm-hmm. and satoshi has more money than the chinese government he can mm-hmm. start like uh, uh contracting out chinese citizens to do certain change jobs the world yeah. basically just like hey i'll pay you you don't need the communist government i mean like the, like the crazy wolf side of that is that okay say that that's possible if someone hacks his coins because they got to the quantum computing number right. of qubits first and, and then, then they decide to, to spend their coins on whatever they'd like exactly um what an interesting problem. I have no idea what will happen. The unknown, the unknown. It's the beauty of life, right? They search uh, through the abyss of the unknown. And uh, like, are we born in the weirdest time in history? Is that like a true curse? Man, I always felt growing up that like, you know, there's that saying like too late to discover the world, too early to discover the stars kind of thing. And I definitely felt that way to a certain extent. Like the best minds of my generation are fucking selling ads. That's what we're doing. Um, Bitcoin has changed a lot of that for me. It feels like, obviously I'm speculating about space travel and all sorts of crazy things, but I really do uh, view this as a fundamentally new technology for humankind. Um, Maybe in the way that quantum computing may also be something like that. Uh, But it does feel like one of the more interesting times to be alive. Maybe I'm just paying attention and life was always interesting, but now I'm just part of the interesting groove in it. I don't know. I don't know, man. I think it's undeniable. Um, like we've got Trump as president. <laughs> We're about to have Jesus as King as the number one album on the charts, <laughs> which is, uh, that's something all right, I'm three beers in that little buzzed. Mm-hmm. Uh, our six packs crushed. We have no more beers. So we're going to, and it's, not even one PM. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with the Kanye album in particular, it's like uh, Jesus is King. Very controversial to say these days, but it does feel, especially the last decade. So going from like two two thousand eight two thousand nine, the financial crisis, the depths of the financial crisis, and we're gonna bring this back to Kanye, of course. So you have uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Uh, from that, you have Jesus, the life of Pablo, now Jesus is king. And I wanted to tweet this out earlier, but I tried it and wasn't articulate enough, but I think I can be more articulate in an audio form. Uh, I think that discography, in particular, those four albums are a perfect uh, immaculation of the decade that was the 2010s, right? Like, we came from the depths of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. My beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy was a fucking dark album about, like, eating ass and porn and, like, being a hedonist. And then slowly came out with Jesus, where it's, like, backing off that more. And then same, The Life of Pablo, like, you can see him rejecting... Uh, sort of the mainstream view of pop culture, and then now Jesus is King has gone full, like polar, they're polar opposite of what he was in 2010 with uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. And I do think that is a, uh, it's a parallel to what we've seen over the last decade, right? Again, from the depths of the financial crisis to Donald Trump becoming our president, the, to, to false hope maybe that some people would say in Obama, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. not not making every not making the world. Uh, better after the financial crisis than we go to Trump. And now it feels like as we head into the 2020s, Bitcoin being a part of it, but everybody's just questioning everything. And 
it, it just feels like the, for Kanye's discography, particularly to end with Jesus is King, to go from the depth of the financial crisis to what I would argue is the precipice of a great awakening where people are questioning everything. And let's not lie, being religious is counterculture right now. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. just came out with one of the most countercultural albums that he could at this particular time. That was my rant. I have so little Kanye expertise to, to reflect back at you, but I would say that, I don't know, how can you not have your politics personally be changing over the last 10 years? Right. Like, if you believe the same shit you believed in 19 fucking, or 2004 or whatever, like, I don't know if you've been paying attention. And it's, it's not like a right versus left. It's, it's just, the world is changing. Now, again, I, sometimes I'm just like, how much is that is I'm just becoming more aware as like a person in my 30s, like with a house and like stuff to worry about. And maybe I'm just finally realizing the world has always been interesting and always, you know, been worth paying attention to. But it does feel like uh, particularly um, this is a time of transition and change. And my, and my own politics have changed tremendously in the last 10, 15 years. And Bitcoin has been a huge part of that. Like it's been... I'm personally just an opportunity to interact with all sorts of political views that I didn't previously hold. Like I would say quite openly that like I do care a lot about the environment and I feel like we're fucking it up and uh, conservatism is really important. Uh, Conserving our environment is really, really important. And yet I believe in Bitcoin and, and quote unquote wasting energy constantly in order to build this really esoteric thing that's not wasting energy though. Uh, I would totally agree. Totally agree. But like, and that's, that's me from 10 years ago would not have thought that me from four or five years ago would not have thought that. Um, and it's interesting to just watch my own attitude change. And, and, and I think it's important, you know, as Bitcoin continues to appreciate in value, as I have a company around it, it's, I keep asking myself, how much is this a convenient attitude that you're taking based upon where you sit in life today versus something that you've come to from a first principle or something that is worth believing? Um, it's really hard to know the answer. Uh, everyone, <laughs> I guess, has to decide for themselves. But I will say, if you're not changing your mind a lot, kind of coming back to your questions about Kanye and his own like changes internally and publicly and privately during his discography, during this discography. Like, uh, I don't think you're a very interesting or aware person if you're not changing a lot right now. Yeah, no, I would agree. And actually I had this, an, a very similar conversation earlier this week, um, focusing on, and is how do you balance? So I, I honed in on the, the Mark Anderson, uh, quote, strong opinions weekly held but how do you balance that like sometimes people use that quote as a cop-out for i fucking hate that quote for not having conviction yeah exactly yeah who has a strong opinion weekly held what kind of person are you (laughs) you believe a bunch of shit like really deeply and you're willing to discard it in two seconds like i understand that it's a quote about uh being data driven i guess yeah but so how so how do you temper that changing when things are changing but also having conviction that's the conversation i got into earlier this week but Mm -hmm. i agree like uh, the the world has changed and if your views haven't changed uh you are uh you're not something's wrong with you but you're not paying attention but also i do think there is a strong need for conviction too like so how do you balance that like what is the conviction what are the things that maybe you you could be a bayesian about it what are the things that you anchor in as these change are going these changes are going on like i think just being a bayesian you anchor yourself in the things that you are most certain of right so like this conspiracy is happening and you're like well what are the likelihood of that like so i'll entertain the possibility of that outcome i won't say no that's impossible but i'll have to square that with what i know about humans and governments and incentives and all these things and occam's razor and 
I'll have to conclude that that conspiracy is ridiculous. Like it doesn't mean I'm not, I'm close minded to it, but the odds of it being true are so low. Whereas other things are like, we live in a conspiratorial era, like this Epstein ridiculousness and stuff. I, I, I'm not a big conspiracy person, but like, and, and, and I, well, and I, don't even say conspiracy person. The whole conspiracy theorist, uh, misnomer or not mm-hmm. misnomer. The, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. That means like a, the negative connotation of conspiracy theorist is Orwellian. What is a conspiracy? A conspiracy, two people, we conspire. Mm-hmm. Like when you're on a phone, like when you go to meet somebody at a bar, you conspire. Like, hey, we're going to meet up. Like the whole word conspiracy has been completely uh, painted with this negative connotation. And conspiracies at the end of the day are just the admission that multiple parties conspire to do a certain thing. And, and I guess maybe there's a question of likely versus unlikely conspiracies. And I suppose to, to, to the point of the world we live in today, so many unlikely things have occurred now where I, I feel like my priors, my Bayesian priors on what the world is or what it can do or what it can become have changed tremendously. And I feel like that's the only way I can square this is it's, it's really hard to entrench oneself and say like, these are the truths of the world and these are the lies and, and here are the good people and the bad. I feel like that's a real, that's a real route towards uh, bad behavior. But um, at the same time, to your point about conviction, like you need to be able to believe things strongly to act. Like I believe I'm very convicted in Bitcoin right now. Like I think it's, it's worth spending all my time, energy and resources on. I've been doing that for years and I don't see why I should stop. Uh, yet I want to believe that I can never be a BSV person or something like this. Like I would recognize when the shit got fucked up and I need to get out of this. <laughs> Will, will I actually, I don't know. Um, maybe it's hilarious and I've already crossed the Rubicon and I haven't realized it and I'm just talking shit right now and a decade from now it'll be obvious to me how lost I am. But um, the best I can say is, is it's just about likelihoods, right? What do you believe is true and possible and what probabilities do you assign to it? And when the probabilities are high enough, you should display conviction, but recognize that there are always probabilities and that your priors for the way the world works should change. Even things like quantum computing are like this, right? Like what's the... What are the odds that the entire infrastructure of the internet in terms of secure communication will collapse in the next five years? It should be low. But then when you see Google saying, hey, we just did this thing, like you got to reconsult your odds and be like, well, shit, if they're saying that and how much more money is going to come into this, it's going to be more than has come into it previously. How fast are they going to move? What are the things they could achieve with this? And suddenly my priors start to change and all of a sudden I'm concerned. And now I'm like, oh, we should be talking about Satoshi's hoard. And for me, that was like a 20 minute journey. You know, like when I was reading about the article, I was like, oh shit, we should be thinking about Satoshi's Horde a lot more, a lot more carefully right now. Um, yeah, so what's the worst case scenario with Satoshi's Horde? Somebody just cracks it and market dumps or? It's not even Satoshi's Horde. If they're able to steal Satoshi's Horde, they're able to fuck with all our coins in a lot of ways. Well, Things like, for example, a transaction, like when you have a bunch of coins and they're safe, quote unquote, from quantum attack, and then you want to move them. In moving them, you have to display the redeem script and the signatures in that five to 10 minute period while they're confirming if a quantum computer is fast enough, it can go take your coins and sign a different transaction because now you've displayed the public keys. Is Bitcoin going to be the first thing that's attacked in your opinion? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like Amazon will have solved this problem for Bitcoin potentially by then. And I would say if if I thought the horizon of this problem were 40 years out and not 5 to 10, I might say it the other way, that Bitcoiners will have solved this problem. I I actually do believe that Bitcoiners will be part of the solution here because who who today, like, like me, like you read that quantum supremacy article and you're immediately thinking about Bitcoin security. So like who's most motivated to build better quantum resistance security al- or cryptography algorithms? It's Bitcoiners. We have the most to lose at the moment. 
Um, some of the smartest minds to figure it out as well. Indeed. No longer writing ads. <laughs> well, it's actually, yeah, no. And I can, I know from personal experience too, that some of the ad men that have uh, made their riches in the ad world are looking into Bitcoin mm-hmm. and it is good to see it. Like just as a, um, a signal, if you will. Like, the, and that's been the knock for the last decade. Again, talking about the 2010s. I do think we're going to have a roaring twenties. I think we're going to have another roaring twenties. But the 2010s, they were marked by uh, basically ad tech, fintech, and quants writing algorithms. Consolidation of people's data. Yes. And uh, maybe people are are breaking out of that that mindset. And it was very lucrative. I don't think it's that lucrative anymore, though. I think people are getting sick of ads. I think uh, the R of opportunities for these quants is is being depreciated as well. Fed policy is pretty... Uh, consolidated across the world. Federal, central banking policy, excuse me, is consolidated against the world. These fucks up these quants and stuff like that. Um, and Bitcoin's just more exciting, right? It's, such, it's so much rawer. It's more raw. Rawer or more raw? More raw. Mm-hmm. More raw. Rawest? The most raw. It's more raw than, than ad tech or anything like that. So it's just naturally got to be uh, interesting for these type of people, right? I totally agree, Marty. Yeah. Well, we're approaching our hard stop here. We Jeff. are. I wish we could go on. We're out of beer. <laughs> we are out of beer. This is true. Um, is there anything you want to end on? Anything, any words of wisdom? Any Anything on the horizon unchained? Any events? Any, um, mm-hmm. any tidbits? Um, I guess I might, I might add, uh, you know, come down to Austin for those Bitcoiners who haven't taken a visit yet. You're always welcome to come visit the Unchained Capital offices, uh, check out some meetups. There's incredible stuff happening. Um, I think from Unchained's perspective, what we're most excited about in the coming months is just open sourcing more and more of our core code. Um, like uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a transparency uh, win to that for customers, but we're really hoping that, you know, as one of the leaders of multi-sig technology over the last few years, we're getting sick of writing all this code. We'd like to pass it out to everybody else. And uh, my best hope would be that they start to use it in the same way that we have been using it. Um, that just makes our business a lot safer. It gives us a lot of ability to band with other developers like Justin Moon and others and put pressure on hardware wallet providers and other key makers to like just make their products even better. Um, so the thing I'm most excited about probably in the coming year is, let's say Bitcoin keeps having days like today and yesterday and it keeps growing, um, we got to get to a place where we're protecting ourselves better. Um, I think for me personally, and maybe for a lot of folks, 2017 was just a wake up moment. Like I can't take this stuff, uh, casually. I need to really protect this and, uh, make it a priority in my life. I think over the next few years, if we have greater price appreciation, it's going to become an existential problem for a lot of people. Like it will be, uh, the majority of my wealth and other people's wealth. And in that situation, um, protecting it and finding good financial services around it and trusted relationships becomes an imperative. So we're really excited about that kind of growth. Um, it's going to get crazy freaks. Oh man. And, uh, Drew, I got to thank you and team for supporting this podcast in particular. Oh, it's thank been you, greatly appreciated it. throughout the year and, uh, I'm big fans of what you guys are doing. It's always incredible getting together. Drew talking about space. <laughs> One of my favorite people to get heady with. Got to get cosmic. Mm-hmm. You were, we literally get cosmic. We talk about the cosmos. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.